You're listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double Lemon. On today's episode, we have UFC 292, Sterling versus O'Malley, preview predictions and breakdown. UFC 292 takes place from the TD Garden in Boston, Massachusetts, this Saturday, August 19th. And in the main event, you have a highly anticipated bantamweight championship fight between the champion, the reigning, defending, undisputed UFC bantamweight champion, even though there's a few asterisks next to those wins, and Aljamain the Funkmaster Sterling going up against one of the most polarizing figures in the entire division, one of the biggest fan favorites and most unique fighters in that bantamweight division, a fighter who not who may not be Super sweet, but they call him Sugar, Sugar Sean O'Malley. O'Malley versus Sterling for the Bantamweight Championship. And then in the co-main event, you have one of the best and most competitive strawweight title fights and could be one of the best women's title fights we've ever seen in the UFC once it plays out in the strawweight division between the 115-pound champion in Zhang Wei Li defending her championship against the number five-ranked powerhouse in Amanda Amandina Lemos. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right. UFC 292, man. We lost a few fights along the way. We were supposed to have Ian Gary versus Jeff Neal. I'm not going to lie to you. That was a fight I was going to back Jeff Neal in. We're not getting that now. Um, we lost that fight. We lost... Uh, what else did we lose? There was a couple fights on this card that we ended up losing. Oh, Cody Garbrandt versus Mario Batista. I'm not happy about that, but we did lose that one. Damon Blackshear actually is going to jump in on short notice against Mario Batista in that fight. So Mario Batista will remain on the card. However, that is not a fight we're going to break down. I would lean with Mario Batista just as an early lean, but at the same time, I could see Blackshear using his wrestling. But I just think even if he wrestles, he's going to end up getting caught in the submission game of... Uh, Batista, because he's a great, great Brazilian jiu-jitsu artist, good scrambles, good submission ability, and a decent striker as well. I think on short notice, that's a tough ask, but Damon Blackshear just fought and just got a twister this past weekend at the UFC Vegas 78 card with Luque versus Dos Anjos. That was a card we did pretty well on. I think we went like 10-2. and two. In overall picks, it was either 10-2 and two or 9-3, and three, something like that. But uh, we did pretty well, and we're I'm expecting to sweep this card. So we're going to get it started, and we're going to kick it off in the women's flyweight division between Karine Silva and Marina Moroz. I'm going to be honest here, man. I see a lot of people siding with Marina Moroz and saying that she's got good grappling, she's a good striker, she's going to be able to outstrike Silva on the feet, outscramble her on the floor. I do think it's a competitive fight. But at the end of the day, I think Karine Silva is going to beat Marina Moroz. I don't like the striking defense of Marina Moroz on the feet. And I think that's the things that's the thing that people are kind of discounting when they're breaking this down or they're shucking it to the side. I feel like she has decent offense. She has good kicks, good kickboxing ability, good ability to step in and out of range. But when you get into exchanges, you know, I feel like she's there to be hit. 
And yes, she can land big shots. Yes, she can grapple. She's a good scrambler. She gets, she has good top position, good ability to go for submissions. Um, but overall, it says she has a 53% striking defense compared to a 35% defense for Karine Silva. She lands 4.19 strikes compared to 2.39 for Silva. Uh, 31% significant strike accuracy rate to 26% significant strike accuracy for Silva. And I understand, and listen, it's not that I think Marina Moroz is a bad fighter. I just think the more aggressive, the fighter that's going to be looking to finish the fight from the start to the finish is going to be Karine Silva. I think that she's going to get in the face of Marina Moroz. I think that they're going to get into those exchanges. I think Moroz will have some success because she is a good kickboxer. She puts her combinations together well. She's got good body kicks, good low kicks, kind of uses that step back and step back in, light on the feet, in and out movement to use as like a counter striker. But at the same time, I just think Karine Silva is a little bit too powerful and she has a little bit too much to offer Marina Moroz in terms of her being dangerous. And I think that's the biggest difference here. I think the danger factor is heavily on the side of Karine Silva. You have 11 and 4 for Marina Moroz to 16 and 4 for Karine. I think if it goes to decision, there is a decent shot that Marina Moroz wins this fight, but at the same time, I kind of just see Karine Silva being too powerful and landing the more damaging strikes over the 15-minute bout. Um, I think that Marina Moroz will have some success. I think she gets out grappled by Kanine because I think Kanine is going to be looking to set up submission attempts more than Moroz. I think Moroz can maybe accrue some top control time. But at the end of the day, I think Kanine Silva is going to have the bigger moment. She's going to have the bigger fight ending possibilities throughout the fight, whether it's landing a big shot on the feet, cutting Marina Moroz, locking up a submission on the floor. Um, but yeah, I'm going to go with Karine Silva via 29-28 unanimous decision. I could see, I could see us a finish, but I'm not super confident that there is going to be a finish. So my pick is going to be Karine Silva via 29-28 unanimous decision. Up next, we're going to move to the flyweight division, the women's flyweight division between Andrea KGB Lee taking on Natalia Silva. 13-7 for Andrea Lee, 15-5-1 for Natalia Silva. When I look at this fight, I see it as Andrea Lee has decent grappling. She has decent ability to get into top position, good ability to land some ground and pound. But her main bread and butter is to keep it on the feet, keep it at kicking range, and be able to pick her apart in a Muay Thai-style kickboxing match. Jab, hook. Body kick, teeps to the bodies, one, two down the middle, or teeps to the body, one, two down the middle, circle, constantly using lateral movement. The one difference I see in this fight is, again, just like the Silva and Moreau's fight, I think there's some similarities between the two fights here. I think Natalia Silva is going to have the more dangerous moments, the bigger fight-affecting moments when it comes to the fight on the feet. She's going to be able to lock up some submissions or transition to submissions if she gets taken down. And I think between Natalia Silva and Karine Silva, I'm more confident in Natalia Silva to be able to defeat uh, defeat Andrea Lee. But I also think that Natalia Silva has the much tougher competition in this fight between Andrea Lee and then Marina Moroz for 
Kanine Silva. Um, I think that's more speaking to the level of Natalia Silva. I think she can be one of the top fighters in this division. I think this is a test for her, but I think this is a test that she passes with flying colors. The only way I see Andrea Lee winning this fight is if she's able to maintain that distance and range and land good counter strikes. Land good combinations punctuated with low kicks, mix in some teep kicks, and then counter with takedowns as Silva tries to pressure. But Silva isn't just going to walk you down, um, get in your face, and be reckless. She's going to look for her opening. She's going to move around. She's going to use her lateral movement, use the in and out movement, look for the openings, and be able to find them. And then when she smells blood, that's when she's going to go for the kill. I think Natalia Silva is going to walk down Andrea Lee. I think the first round's probably competitive, but in the second round, I think she catches Andrea Lee with a big shot, probably an overhand right, rocks her with a left hook, she covers up, she gets her up against the cage, gets in the clinch, lands some good knees, lands some elbows, and then I think she locks up the Darce choke and gets a submission victory. So my pick is going to be Natalia Silva to defeat Andrea Lee via second round Darce choke submission. All right, now we move to the next fight up in the middleweight division. On the early prelims, you have a bout between Andre Petrosky and Gerald GM3 Mearshark. Um, I did a tape study on this fight on my Patreon, so if you want to subscribe to the Patreon, you can get the access to the tape study, my betting leans for the week, and everything in between for as low as fifteen or $10 a month. You can subscribe for $5 a month, but you won't be able to get the fighter breakdowns that I upload or the voiceover tape study that's up there, but you'll be able to get the articles, the betting leans, and, and things like that. But Petrosky versus GM3, you know, they're pretty similar in their overall fight game. Uh, Andre Petrosky, very, very talented wrestler, very talented grappler, really good top control, top pressure. He's looking to get those takedowns. He's looking to control you from the top, and he's looking to submit you. He does, however, have good striking on the feet. He loves to throw that overhand. Uh, overhand right, overhand left, because he does switch between southpaw and orthodox throughout the fight. He's going to love to throw that overhand left, overhand right, check hook, overhand, three, two, either a three, two or a three overhand. He loves to set up that combination or a two, three, and he lands it pretty effectively. And I think he does have more power on the feet than GM3. He has decent kicks to the body, but like we said, the bread and butter is going to be in the grappling. The one thing I worry about against the guy in GM3, now with the experience advantage, it goes to GM3. He's got 40 or 51 fights compared to 11 pro MMA fights for Petrosky. But the one thing we know about GM3 is that he isn't the most durable. Even if he does survive, he gets hurt. He gets rocked in a lot of his fights. But the one weapon he can use is his cardio. He seems to be able to slow down the opponent's by either out-grappling them, out-positioning them, out-scrambling them, or by letting them blow their gas tank on him by beating the shit out of him, and then eventually getting them to slow down and finding his pathway to either a ground and pound TKO, landing a big shot on the feet like he did against Bruno Silva, or locking up a submission, taking your back, getting a rear naked choke, um, locking up a guillotine. That's what his path to victory is going to be. Do I think Gerald Mearshart is live for a round three submission or a TKO? Yes, I definitely think he is because the gas tank of Andre Petrosky does he does tend to slow down. He'll be very good, very solid in the first round. 
close the distance, look to land big looping punches, overhands and hooks, shoot the takedown, get in on the opponent, get to the body lock, backside trip, inside and outside trip, and, you know, look to establish dominant position and look for guillotines, uh, look for arm, look for arm triangles. He's very heavy on the chokes, not so much the arm locks like the Kimura or the Americana or the arm bar, but he is very solid with looking for the chokes. And we've seen him slow down and then come back and kind of get his second wind in the third round. So I think that a lot of people might be expecting GM3 to slow down Petrosky, out grapple him, out scramble him, and then eventually be able to lock up a submission in the third round. And do I think that that's possible? I definitely do. Um, I could see it more maybe happening in the second round because Petrosky sometimes can really slow down in that second, still land his big shots, but then come back in the third round and really put it on the opponent looking for takedowns, looking for body lock trips, inside and outside trips, body lock throws, and then looking to lock up the submission once it hits the mat. The one thing I like about Petrosky is if he feels like he's in a position on top that could lead to a sweep, that could lead to a reversal, he'll give up that position and control the opponent in transition so he can be in a more advantageous position. We've seen him do that in multiple fights before. Like he might be in the mount and about to get shucked off and the opponent's kind of up against the fence. So he'll step off, still control the head of the opponent, drag him off the fence and then step back into side control and then open his hips up to step back over into mount. He's very, very technical and very intelligent when it comes to his grappling game. And I think that he's just too much for GM3. Um, GM3 is a guy that I would fade at this point in his career. I faded him against Joe Pfeiffer because of the striking ability and he got knocked out in the first round. Even though I think this is a more favorable and more winnable fight for GM3, I don't see him being able to lock up that Hail Mary submission against a guy like Petrosky, who when it comes to raw jujitsu, raw grappling, positional control, um, transitions, ability to maintain position, I favor Andre Petrosky in that all day. I think he's much stronger. I think he's much more technical in the grappling. And I think he's going to be able to control GM3 in the only area where GM3 is really going to be able to win this fight. Now, I do favor GM3 in terms of the left kick to the body, the left straight. If he can keep it on the feet, he might be able to outstrike Petrosky. He, he might be a little bit more technical with his straight punches, his rear kick to the body, you know, the inside and outside low kicks. But at the end of the day, if Petrosky gets a hold of him, I just think he's going to be able to do whatever he wants to him. I'm going to go with Andre Petrosky to defeat Gerald Mearshart. Um, I'm going to go with a submission, actually. I think he ground and pounds him a little bit and eventually takes his back and locks up a rear naked choke. So I'm going to go with Andre Petrosky to be able to to defeat Gerald GM3 Mearshart, I should say, via a second round rear naked choke submission. I know that the submission might not be the most popular pick. You'd probably want to either take TKO or decision, but GM3 is finished a lot. And I think if anybody in this division can submit a guy like GM3, I think it's Petrovsky with his technical and positional advantages on the mat. So Andre Petrovsky via second round rear naked choke submission. Potentially an arm triangle too. I could see that if he catches him in a scramble. All right, up next, we've got a battle between Gregory Rodriguez or Gregory Robocop Rodriguez and Dennis Tolulin. I'm going to be honest, I didn't watch a ton of tape on this fight. And 
I would tell you that the one person I'm probably the least confident in terms of betting on on this card is Gregory Robocop Rodriguez. Because the one thing I do know about Tallulah is that although he's not the most technical, although, you know, sometimes he can get into exchanges and get hurt and get clipped, I still feel like he has a path to victory on the feet against the guy in Gregory Rodriguez who is there to be hit, who has been knocked out before, but who can also, you know, get hit a ton in fights, come back. They call him RoboCop due to his durability because sometimes he can take the biggest shots, the, the, the you know, most massive shots from his opponent and still find a way to come back, get in their face, walk them down and land brutal combinations, brutal kicks, work his wrestling, work his ground and pound, and it's really hard to get him out of there. But he did get caught with a stance-changing combination from Bruno Ferreira and knocked out with a brutal left overhand. I believe it was an overhand left or a left hook. Got dropped as Silva was or Bruno Ferreira was backed up against the cage. Boom, hit him one time, got dropped, and the fight was over. Now, Ferreira is a very powerful striker, but at the same time, you know, Rodriguez was in control of that fight. And he left himself open. Tolulin is a very technical striker, but sometimes he lacks the volume and output. And I think that's where Gregory Rodriguez is going to be able to exploit that. However, I think the least or the path of least resistance for Gregory Rodriguez to beat a guy like Tolulin is to use his wrestling, his grappling, and use his Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Because we've seen that once Tolulin hits the floor, he might have you know, have decent takedown defense, but if you're able to get that takedown, opponents can kind of just pass the guard, get into mount, you know, move wherever they want and eventually submit to Lulin because he lacks the Brazilian jiu-jitsu defense and the grappling knowledge. He mainly wants to keep the fight on the feet. Gregory Rodriguez has a 23% uh, win percentage by submission. He's got a 62% win rate via TKO, uh, 85% overall finish rate. Dennis Tolulin has a 90% knockout rate and a 10% decision rate. This is a fight I do not see going to decision. Average fight time for either fighter, 747 for Robocop Rodriguez, 658 for Dennis Tolulin. Um, I think the best option for Rodriguez is to take the fight to the floor, get in the top position, land some ground and pound, and allow for Tolulin to give up his back or give up his neck for a submission. And I think Robocop by submission is a good look. But like I said, RoboCop is not a person that I would tell you to bet on or not a fighter I would tell you to bet on when he's almost a 4-1 to one favorite. He was a pretty decent-sized favorite against Bruno Ferreira, and he got knocked out cold. And look at what Ferreira just – what happened to Ferreira in his last fight against uh, Ruzi Boev. A lot of people thought Ferreira was going to beat him, and Ruzi Boev knocked him out in the first round. So you got to take that into consideration. Tolulin is a long-rangey striker. He has decent technical ability. If he can slow down Rodriguez or counter him, Rodriguez is there to be hit. He's got good power in his boxing, decent kicks to the body. He can let his combinations go and let his hands go. And if Rodriguez stands in the pocket and trades with Tolulin, I feel like Tolulin is a little bit more defensively responsible to where he may be able to slip and rip maybe rip a shot to the body, rip an uppercut up the middle, and hurt Gregory Rodriguez. Like I said, I think the path to least resistance for Rodriguez is to use the wrestling, get in on the hips, take him down, control from the top position, look for a submission, and get him out of there using his BJJ, which we don't really see him use too much. And I think standing on the feet with Tolulin, even though Rodriguez can strike, he's a good Muay Thai fighter, great boxing, good knees, good kickboxing. I think path to least resistance is in the grappling. I think if it's a mainly striking matchup, even though I would probably favor Rodriguez, I think the best bet 
would be to bet on the underdog at, in Dennis Tallulan because we've seen Rodriguez's durability fail him plenty of times. And at a plus 275 underdog with a guy who has a 90% finish rate in his career and all of his finish wins come by knockout, I think Tallulan is the guy that you want to favor if you're looking from a straight betting perspective. I think if you're looking at the prop betting side, then you take a shot on Gregory Rodriguez by submission, which probably is at plus 200, plus 250, somewhere around there. So I think Rodriguez by sub in terms of the betting side would be the best pick for Rodriguez. But if you're on the side of Dennis Tallulan, I think at plus 275, he's worth a sprinkle in a bet this weekend. Um, You know, he's at a two-inch height disadvantage against Gregory Robocop Rodriguez, but he's going to have a two-inch reach advantage. I feel like that reach advantage is going to play a big factor against a guy in Rodriguez who walks forward, puts himself into danger, gets in the pocket, and gets into those wild exchanges. So um, I don't know who my pick is, to be honest. I think this is a pretty difficult fight to pick. I know everybody's going to pick Rodriguez just based on principle. Um I'm going to fade Gregory Rodriguez. I'm going to fade him. I'm going to go with the underdog in the plus 275, Dennis Tallulan. Not so much because I think it's the most likely outcome, but more because I'm fading the durability of a guy like Rodriguez in a striking matchup against a guy who has a 90% finish rate via knockout and who's going to have the two-inch height advantage, even though the reach is almost identical. Or I'm sorry, a two-inch reach advantage, even though... Rodriguez is the taller fighter. I feel like Tallulan is better defensively and a little bit more technical on the feet and not willing to get into those wild barn burner exchanges like Rodriguez. Rodriguez is going to leave himself open for a big shot, get hit on the chin, get clipped, and get dropped. So give me Dennis Tallulan to defeat Gregory Robocop Rodriguez via second round knockout. All right, up next, we close out the prelims in the middleweight division between the former middleweight champion in Chris, the All-American Weidman, making his return after that horrific leg break injury against Uriah Hall, taking on another veteran and another another fighter who's been in the UFC for about as long as Chris Weidman. I feel like they started around the same time. Former Ultimate Fighter alum in Brad Tavares. Brad Tavares and Chris Weidman. I love this fight. I think this fight is perfect for both guys. I think that this is a decent fight to see where Chris Weidman is at at this point in his MMA career, considering he was off for about two years following that leg break. But at the same time, man, Chris Weidman is a guy where I do think this is a winnable fight for him. I think that he has decent boxing. I think people are going to just look at the durability issues of Chris Weidman, look at the chin issues, look at the leg break issues, and immediately fade Chris Weidman's chances to win this fight. And I completely understand why, because Chris Weidman more than likely should lose this fight. Um, It's going to be harder to get takedowns against Brad Tavares. Tavares has a really, really solid takedown defense. He's sitting at an 80% takedown defense rate. Weidman has a 65% takedown defense, but a 47% takedown accuracy rate. However, Weidman averages about four takedowns per 15-minute fight. That's over one takedown around if we're looking at a 15-minute fight, while Tavares is going to look to stand on the feet keep it at kickboxing range, outbox the opponent, land good counters, land good low kicks, and look to outpoint the opponent or land a big shot and knock them out. But for the most part, Tavares wants to keep it a kickboxing match. Chris Weidman has good kicks. He has good boxing. I mean, we've seen him knock out guys like Vitor Belfort. We saw him knock out uh, Anderson Silva, obviously. We've seen him go back and forth with Jacare Souza in a fight where it looked like he was outboxing him, outstriking him. But you know, Jacare just stayed in the fire, 
closed that distance, landed some good knees to the body, landed some good shots, and got him out of there. We saw him outbox Gegard Mousasi as well in their fight. I believe it was at UFC 210. However, you know, he lost that fight via an illegal knee. I believe he had him in the front chancery. The front headlock landed a knee while Musasi was down on the ground, or one knee was down, and it was a DQ win for Gegard Musasi or a no contest. But his boxing is pretty underrated, in my opinion. I just think people don't like the defense of Weidman and, and you know, his age. He's a very old fighter at this point in MMA, especially for the UFC. I think he's at 40 years old now. Looking at the reach, we're going to have a 4-inch reach advantage for Weidman and a 1-inch height advantage, so he is going to be able to land the kicks at a better distance or be able to strike from a further distance than Brad Tavares. But Tavares has really good counters, very good slip and rip, slip inside the jab, right hand, come back with the left hook, 1-2, slip, rip to the body, good low kicks. Um, I don't like the durability of either fighter, but if I had to flip a coin and pick who I believe is able to last a little bit longer, who I think has more left in the tank, I think I'm going to have to go with Brad Tavares. I just don't think... Chris Weidman is a fighter that I would feel comfortable telling you to bet on or even feel comfortable picking. And I know you're going to look at those odds and say, well, plus 220 for a former champion, you know, sign me up all day. And I get it based on the odds value, based on the money line value. But at the same time, man, I feel like Brad Tavares is going to be able to TKO Chris Weidman here. You know, he's coming off that horrific leg break injury. He said, I want to start this fight and throw the hardest leg kick of my life just to show that I'm still there. What if he does that and he breaks his leg? What if he does that and it hurts a little bit more than he thought and it puts a little bit of doubt in his head to start the fight off? I don't think it's going to be easy for Weidman to take down Tavares, but he did get some takedowns against the Olympic wrestler in Yoel Romero back at their fight before he got flying need into the stratosphere. He looked good in that fight, got good takedowns, was out wrestling Yoel. Um, I think Tavares can stuff a few takedowns. I do think Weidman will at least get one takedown in this fight. I'll say that. But I think the longer the fight goes, I think Weidman's durability is going to fade him here. I think Tavares is going to be able to land the cleaner counters with his boxing. Slip inside, right hand, left hook. Double jab, right hand. Right hand, left hook, low kick. Jab, left hook, right low kick. One, two, left hook right low kick. I think that he's going to be able to outstrike Weidman. And I think at this point, you just have to fade the durability and the the finishing upside of Weidman. If Weidman gets Tavares to the ground, do I think he can ground and pound him? Do I think he can submit him? Yes. But do I think that's what's going to happen? Do I think that's the most likely outcome? No, not, not at all. I think that Brad Tavares, um, as long as he can survive that first round, I think we are live for a first round finish from Weidman, either via TKO or submission. But at the same time, I'm going to go with the fighter who I think has a little bit more left in the tank. I'm going to go with the fighter who I believe is the more technical striker and technical kickboxer with really solid takedown defense, good counter ability. And I'm going to go with Brad Tavares to defeat Chris Weidman via finish. I think he actually TKOs him. I know Tavares isn't a guy who gets a ton of TKOs, who gets a ton of knockouts, but I definitely think that this is a, a spot where Tavares can get that KO. So give me Brad Tavares to defeat. Chris, the All-American Weidman, via a second-round TKO victory. I just can't side with Weidman coming off that injury, and I can't side with him after his recent performances inside the octagon. So give me Brad Tavares, second-round TKO. And one more thing, Tavares went life and death 
with Drickus Duplessis. He hurt Duplessis a ton of times. They got into some good exchanges. Yeah, he got outstruck. Yeah, he got out pressured. Yeah, he got out volumed and got beat up the longer the fight went. But early on, Tavares was in that fight and Tavares was outstriking Duplessis. I think if Weidman fought Duplessis, he'd get demolished in one round. So that's another thing you have to look at. So give me Brad Tavares via second round TKO over Chris Weidman. <laughs> All right, and now we move to the main card in the first fight up in the UFC bantamweight division. You have a battle that's going to be a barn burner between the number six ranked Marlon Chito Vera taking on the number 10 ranked Pedro the Young Punisher Munoz. I think this is a perfect fight for both guys. We know that originally it was going to be Henry Cejudo taking on Marlon Vera, and I think that's a fight that was kind of back against the wall for Marlon. I, I was pretty sure that Cejudo was going to out-wrestle him, out-grapple him, and out-strike him to a pretty like one-sided decision. But this Pedro Munoz fight is not only going to be better for the fans, I feel like, but it's also going to be a more winnable fight for Marlon Chito Vera. There's not going to be a whole lot of grappling. There's not going to be a whole lot of wrestling in this fight. We're going to primarily get a kickboxing match for 15 minutes, and the question is, who do you favor in a kickboxing match? Well, power advantage I would give to Pedro Munoz. Creativity in terms of the striking, I would give to Marlon Chito Vera. Volume, I would give to Pedro Munoz. And one-hitter quitter knockout ability, um, I would probably say it's even because I think Pedro Munoz has that one-hitter quitter knockout power or that one-hitter quitter ability. We saw him use it in his last fight where he won a decision against Chris Gutierrez as a pretty big underdog. And that was a fight where I bet Chris Gutierrez, I was very confident he was going to outpoint him, outstrike him, and win that fight via decision. Gutierrez had a lot of momentum going into that fight, and Pedro Munoz landed the bigger shots and clearly won the fight via decision, but it was close. Um, but the bigger shots, the bigger round swinging moments came from Munoz as he knocked him down, I think, twice in that fight. Munoz has really good low kicks, and I think that's something he can use pretty effectively against Marlon Chito Vera. He can chop those low kicks, chop that calf kick, and be able to slow down Marlon Vera. Marlon Vera is never going to be a fighter who wins rounds. Even in the fight that he won against Dominic Cruz, he probably won the rounds because of the big round-winning moments. He was able to drop Dominic Cruz with some punches and counters, and eventually was able to catch him as he used that darting movement against the cage with a brutal head kick as he directed him right into it. In the fight against Rob Font, Marlon Vera was down on the numbers. He got outstruck by 200, 250 strikes, and eventually he caught... Rob Font with a sidekick to the chin, a.k.a. a sweet chin music. He caught him with a front kick to the chin, and he also caught him with a, I believe it was an elbow. I think it was an, was it an elbow? Let me think. I believe he caught him with an elbow, a sidekick, and a front kick to the chin. And then eventually caught him with another left hook and dropped him. So the way Marlon Vera fights, he's not going to be the most active fighter. He's not going to have the most volume. That's going to come from Pedro Munoz. But the bigger round-winning moments are going to come from a guy in Marlon Chito Vera who's going to be landing that big shot that hurts the opponent. But that's kind of a recipe for disaster against a guy in Pedro Munoz who's going to get in their face, who's going to stand in the boxing range, who's going to stand in the kickboxing range, who's going to slug it out with you, and who's going to be having the power and the equalizer that he might be able to catch Marlon Vera because we've never seen Pedro Munoz be finished in his UFC career. I don't even think he's ever been knocked down. I could be wrong, but I don't think he's ever been knocked down before either. And that's something you have to take into consideration when breaking down this fight. Both men have fought Sugar Sean O'Malley. Marlon Vera, the only man to defeat Sean O'Malley. 
uh, via TKO in the first round, I believe. Pedro Munoz, no contest. I poke Dr. Stoppage. Um, but Pedro Munoz is going to be in the face of Marlon Vera. He's going to be keeping that high guard, trying to chop those calf kicks, attack the inside and outside legs. I think Marlon Vera is going to be looking to close the distance with elbows, upward elbows, uh, clinch elbows, knees to the body, front kicks to the body. Pedro Munoz has good front kicks as well. Pedro Munoz is going to be looking to land those stance-changing overhands, stance-changing uh, combinations with overhands, big hooks, and be looking to land on the chin of Marlon Vera and hurt him. If I was going to say anybody gets finished in this fight, I actually think that probably goes to the side of Marlon Vera getting finished. Not because I think that Pedro Munoz is more dangerous. I just think that Pedro Munoz might be a little bit more durable than Marlon Chito Vera. But to be honest, I kind of see this fight going the distance. I know somebody's probably going to be expecting a finish from either fighter. They're either going to think Marlon Vera will be down on the rounds, eventually catch Pedro with a head kick. Maybe he chops him down with some low kicks and is able to time a one-two down the middle or time an elbow stepping in. And I could definitely see that from the side of Vera. But at the same time, I think the more active fighter is going to be Pedro Munoz. I think the fighter who's going to be chopping the low kicks more, who's going to be walking down the opponent, is going to be Pedro Munoz. I think the body shots, the low kicks, the overhands, um, the overall more active fighter is going to be Munoz. I think the better grappler is Pedro Munoz. The higher finishing upside in terms of submission is Munoz. But at the same time, Vera's so tricky, he can probably walk Munoz into something that rocks him or hurts him. But do I see him knocking him down? I'm not totally sure. I think Marlon Vera is capable of knocking down Pedro Munoz. But a lot of the times when I look at this fight and I break it down, I feel like the more active fighter is going to be Munoz. I feel like the more active fighter in terms of doing damage with like low kicks is going to be Munoz. I think the better grappler in Brazilian jiu-jitsu artist is Pedro Munoz. I think the fighter who's probably a little bit more technical on the feet and picks his shots better is Marlon Vera. But at the same time, that comes with a lack of volume when he's, you know, putting his output out there. And a lot of the times Marlon Vera is going to lose those fights unless he lands a big shot that hurts the opponent and leads them into a submission, rocks the opponent and gets a knockdown or knocks the opponent out. And against a guy as durable as Pedro Munoz, I don't see that happening. So I'm actually going to go with the underdog. I'm going to go with Pedro, the young Punisher Munoz, at a plus 154, the number 10-ranked fighter in the division, to defeat the number 6-ranked Marlon Chito Vera via 29-28 unanimous decision. I just don't see Vera being able to finish Munoz. And if that's the case, I think Munoz is more active. He's going to land those low kicks. He's going to have the better grappling in jiu-jitsu if we get into grappling exchanges. And he's going to be the more active fighter winning rounds. And the way that Marlon Vera wins rounds is by getting those big moments where he rocks the opponent, drops them, knocks them down. And that's not going to happen against the guy with the durability of Munoz. So give me the number 10 ranked Pedro, the young punisher Munoz, as the plus 154 underdog to defeat Marlon Chito Vera via 29-28 unanimous decision. All right, up next, we move to a battle in the welterweight division between All right, and now we move to the featured bout of the evening in the UFC's welterweight division between the number 11-ranked Neil Magny taking on the number 13-ranked Ian Machado Gary. Um, I'm going to keep this one short and sweet. I think Ian Gary's going to knock out Neil Magny. I really do. I could see Magny being durable enough to last, and maybe he wins or loses via decision, but I just don't see a path to victory for Neil Magny. I don't think he's going to be able to instill that pressure-style game with the heavy volume, pushing Ian Machado Gary up against the fence, landing knees, 
landing elbows, getting takedowns, using the wrestling. I don't see that game plan working against a guy in Ian Gary who's coming off of that head kick knockout over Daniel D. Rod Rodriguez. That was a fight where I faded Ian Gary heavy. I'm not going to fade him again here against Magny. Magny's coming in on short notice. Magny won that split decision victory over Phil Rowe, where I thought Phil Rowe did enough to win that fight. I thought he outstruck Magny. I thought he landed the bigger shots. I thought he won the fight, and I did have a bet on him as an underdog in that fight, so maybe, you know, I'm a little bit biased, but at the same time, you look at the height, it's 6'3 for both fighters, and Magny is going to have a 5.5-inch reach advantage, where if he can stick behind that jab, use those teep kicks, use the one-twos, use the body kicks, use the low kicks, then yeah, he can win this fight. We've seen his grappling got better. We saw him be able to submit Daniel Rodriguez with that Darce choke and, you know, lock up that submission, get some takedowns. I don't think there's any way that Neil Magny wins this fight, though. I think Ian Gary um, isn't going to get taken down. I don't even think he's going to be able to get pushed against the fence by Magny because of his footwork, because of his in-and-out movement, because of his counter ability. I think he's going to land those straight punches, the one-twos down the middle. He's going to chop that body kick, chop those low kicks, come back on the counter as Magny steps into range. And I think he catches him with a brutal one-two right down the middle, rocks him and pours it on, rips the shot to the body, and folds Magny with a body shot to get this fight done via a second-round TKO. I'm going with Ian Machado Gary. I'm going with the future. I faded him in the last one. I'm not doing it here. Give me Ian Machado Gary to defeat Neil Magny via a very impressive statement-making performance via second round TKO, folding him with a body shot. All right, and now we get to the co-main event of the evening in the women's strawweight division. For the women's strawweight championship, you have the champion in Zhang Weili. Zhang Magnum Weili taking on Amanda Amandina Lemos, who's number five in the division. I know everybody and their mother is fading Amanda Lemos in this fight. Everybody is picking Zhang Weili, saying that, well, Amanda Lemos got caught in a standing arm triangle by Jessica Andrade. Weili's going to use her grappling, use her wrestling, take her down, outstrike her on the feet, out grappler, and eventually lock up a submission. Do I think that Zhang Weili is the better grappler with better top control? Yes. Do I think if she uses her grappling, that's probably the path of least resistance in the fight? Yeah, I do. I think if she uses her wrestling and her grappling, that she will be able to out grapple Amanda Lemos as long as she can avoid getting caught in a guillotine, getting caught in a darse choke, because Amanda Lemos is active off of her back. And even if you take her down, she's going to look for submissions. She's going to look to work her way back up to the feet. She's going to look to attack the neck. But I think people are overestimating the striking ability of Zhang Weili on the feet against a girl with the technique and power of Amanda Lemos. I think Amanda Lemos is the one girl in this division, aside from Rose Namajunas, who can exploit the striking defensive inefficiencies of Zhang Weili. She leaves her chin on the center line almost every time she throws her combinations with the hands. When she throws her kicks, especially if it's a low kick, one, two, hook, right, low kick, she can slip off to that lead side and really drive into that low kick and avoid any potential counters. But when she throws her three, four, five punch combinations and punctuates them with a kick to the body or a kick to the head, she leaves her head on the center line to get countered with big shots. We saw her get hit with a big overhand from Joanna uh, Jacek. We saw her get countered with a big head kick up top, a lead head kick up top to the head of uh, from Rose Namajunas. We saw her get outstruck against Rose Namajunas, even though she was doing well with the grappling and the takedowns. 
Um, Amanda Lamos can get hit as well. She does kind of leave her head on the center line and throw big looping punches. And maybe the faster fighter in terms of those straight punches is going to be Zhang Wei Li. So if Zhang Wei Li can intercept those wide looping hooks, overhands, and uppercuts and time it with a straight punch down the middle, then I do think that she can hurt a girl like Amanda Lamos and potentially get her out of there. But for the most part, I think the more powerful fighter, 100% is Amanda Lamos. I think the more technical striker on the feet, honestly, I kind of give the technical advantage to Lamos. She she does have a lot of power and she does get a lot of knockouts, but she uses good teep kicks, good front kicks up the middle, chops the low kick. She kind of pulls back her uh, lower half in her midsection to be able to avoid counters from the opponents. And that is something that Zhang Wei Li does as well. They kind of lean in and pull away with their, their lower half of the body in the midsection to avoid body shots, which in turn will lead them or lead their upper half or head into head kicks. So I think the lead head kick from either Wei Li or Amanda Lemos is a path to victory in this fight. I think there is a potential for a head kick knockout, but at the same time, I think the strength advantage is probably going to go to Lamos. I think she's the stronger fighter, but I think Zhang Wei Li is the stronger grappler and the more technical grappler. I think that over the 25 minutes, the, the better cardio, the championship experience, the competition experience, that all goes to Zhang Wei Li. But if anybody's going to catch Zhang Wei Li on the chin and knock her out, um, Rose Nami Yunus did it with a kick. I think Amanda Lamos can do it with her boxing. She has beautiful right hooks and left hooks. And if she smells blood, let's say she catches Wei Li with a big left hook and stuns her, she's going to run at you and she's going to go with hooks, uppercuts, straight punches, and she's going to put it on you until she puts you away. She has good low kicks, good front kicks to the body, good one twos, good two threes, good three twos, um, good counter ability, good pullback counter. She has a good pull counter right hand. If she can avoid the right hand of Zhang Wei Li, she can slip, come back with a right hand of her own and land a big counter. Everything that Amanda Lemos lands on the feet is powerful. Everything that she lands on the feet is dangerous. And she just knocked out Marina Rodriguez, who's one of the most technical strikers in that division. Now, she doesn't have the grappling upside and the grappling ability that Chong Wei Li does. And Amanda Lemos was able to take her down, was able to get into the top position, was able to take the back, float over, get the hooks, almost get a rear naked choke. But you know, Marina Rodriguez was able to survive. Amanda Lemos isn't 100% incompetent when it comes to the grappling and the jiu-jitsu side of the fight. I just think that Zhang Wei Li is a little bit more active. She's a little bit more technical, and she's better from that top position if the fight does hit the mat. But when it comes to the fight on the feet, I really, really do think that Amanda Lemos has the power to knock out Zhang Wei Li, and I think that's what she does. I'm going with the big underdog. I'm going with the almost 3-1 to one underdog in the number 5 ranked Amanda Lemos to be able to catch Zhang Wei Li with a big left hook, drop her, and knock her out early in the fight. I think she knocks her out in the second or the third round. I just really have never liked the striking defense of Zhang Wei Li, and she's always been at a speed advantage against a lot of the fighters. She wasn't faster than Rose Namajunas, at least in my opinion, and that's why two out of her three losses in her pro MMA career and the only losses in the UFC come to a fighter in Rose Namajunas. I think Amanda Lemos isn't as light on the feet as Rose Namajunas, but she has one thing that Rose doesn't have, and that's big one-strike knockout power. Now, Rose does have knockout power, and we've seen it showcased against Zhang Weili with that head kick, 
but one punch knockout power, that's Amanda Lemos. But she also has good kicks to the body, good low kicks, good head kicks. She's got good counter ability on the feet. Yes, she does wind up. Yes, if they're not going to be probably as fast as Zhang Wei Li's strikes, but Zhang Wei Li leaves her head on the center line a little too much for my liking. And I think Amanda Lemos is going to slip and rip with one of those big left hooks. Bang Zhang Wei Li on the chin, crack her on the chin, drop her, and get her out of there. So I'm going with the three to one underdog. I'm going with the number five ranked Amanda Amandina Lemos to defeat the champion in Magnum Zhang Wei Li via a second round knockout victory and become the new UFC strawweight champion. I just think that there's a lot of red flags in terms of Whaley's striking defense when it comes to boxing and her her um, willingness and ability to get into slugfests where she'll leave her chin on the center line. Leaving the chin on the center line against a girl with the power and technical boxing ability of Amanda Lemos is a big problem, and I think we see that problem executed this weekend with Amanda Lemos knocking out Zhang Whaley with a brutal left hook in the second round of their title fight and becoming the new UFC strawweight champion. All right, and now we get to the main event of the evening for the UFC Bantamweight Championship of the World, the highly anticipated title fight and the title shot for the Dana White Contender Series alum in the number two ranked Bantamweight and Sugar Sean O'Malley taking on the champion, the reigning defending funk master in the human backpack in Aljamain, the funk master Sterling. Listen, I think we really know what to expect. This is a striker versus grappler matchup. If El if Eljamain Sterling is able to get in on the hips, take down Sean O'Malley, take his back, get that body triangle, and either flatten him out for ground and pound or lock up a rear naked choke, then he's going to submit Sean O'Malley and he's going to make it look easy. However, the one thing that you haven't seen Eljamain Sterling face yet, aside from Corey Sandhagen, is a fighter with the length, and reach of a Sean O'Malley. When you look at the intangibles and the stats for this fight, Eljamain Sterling has a 71-inch reach to a 72-inch reach for O'Malley, but when it comes to the height, he's going to be at a 5-inch or a 4-inch height advantage. So even though the reach is similar, the height advantage for O'Malley is going to be a big issue for Eljamain Sterling. Now, he was in the same situation against Corey Sandhagen. He closed the distance. He moved left and right, moved laterally to cut him off, landed some kicks, got in on the hips, shucked him forward, took the back, jumped on it, backpack, body triangle, rear naked choke, switched the grip, and then eventually submitted Corey Sandhagen in the opening round. That was a fight where I faded Eljamain Sterling also against Corey Sandhagen. I had picked Sandhagen to beat Eljamain Sterling to win that number one contender fight. But in this fight, I think we have some different things. Like, I know that Corey Sandhagen is a dangerous striker. I know that he has knockout ability with his kicks, very good wheel kicks, flying knees, uh, front kicks, roundhouse kicks, body kicks. But the one difference is the boxing ability. And Sean O'Malley having the length, having the reach, having the distance advantage over Aljamain like Corey did, but having that one-punch knockout power that he possesses, the power advantage is what I'm worried about for Aljamain Sterling in this fight. Yes, I think Aljamain Sterling can get in on the hips of Sean O'Malley. Yes, I think he can take him down. But the one thing you have to realize is that through Aljamain Sterling's ability to crash the pocket, close the distance, and shoot those takedowns, whether it's a double leg, whether it's a single leg, whether it's shucking you forward on a single to work to the body lock, to work to a trip, to work to take the back, then yeah, of course he's going to have the grappling advantage. But the one thing you have to worry about is he's never faced a guy 
who can exploit the striking defense of Aljamain Sterling or exploit his striking defense inefficiencies like a Sean O'Malley. O'Malley has that one hit or quitter pull counter right hand, the one, two down the middle, the brutal uppercut to the fade back right hand, the brutal switch kicks, the, the front kicks up top to the head, uh, the roundhouse kicks, the left hook, the right hand. He's got a piston of a right hand. He'll switch stances between southpaw and orthodox. The straight punches are going to be the biggest weapons for Sean O'Malley against Eljamain Sterling. And off those level changes, you have to look back to the Marlon Moraes and Eljamain Sterling fight. He caught Eljamain Sterling on a level change with a roundhouse kick or switch kick to the head. It eventually was, it was a knee to the head, but it was really a switch kick and he caught him. The one thing you saw with Sean O'Malley facing off against Piotr Jan was that he was able to cut Peter Jan with a knee right up the middle in the middle of a combination. He was able to time that knee, come right up the center channel, and cut him. I think if he times the takedown attempts of Aljamain Sterling with that knee up the middle, I think he can hurt Aljamain really bad and potentially knock him out with one shot. I do favor the finishing upside on the feet 100% to go to Sean O'Malley. And I don't think a ton of people would disagree with me there. I favor the finishing upside on the ground if, with Aljamain Sterling 100%. If he's able to get those takedowns, if he's able to shuck him forward, if he's able to take his back, if he's able to ground and pound him, he can get a ground and pound TKO or he can submit him. We've seen Sean O'Malley have issues with the grappling against Piotr Jan. And everybody's going to say, well, look at what Aljamain Sterling did to Piotr Jan in the rematch. Well, look at what Piotr Jan did to Aljamain Sterling in in the first fight completely out grappled dominated and outclassed him on the feet took him down I think seven or eight times and made Aljamain Sterling look like he didn't know how to wrestle he came into the second fight he proved a lot of people wrong took him down got to the backpack position landed ground and pound got to the top position he got some takedowns against Henry Cejudo in his last fight but there hasn't really been a dominant performance from Aljamain Sterling as the champion yet in his UFC title run. He defeated Piotr Jan to win the title in the rematch at UFC 273 in a fight where a lot of people believed Piotr Jan won that fight via decision, but Aljamain did have the better control with the grappling, the takedowns and all that, and then lost the middle rounds and then came back and won one of the later rounds. So he won that fight. He goes in, fights TJ Dillashaw at UFC 280. Dillashaw comes into the fight as a one-armed man. That wasn't even really a fight because TJ had one arm. He couldn't defend the takedowns. He couldn't stop the takedowns. The shoulder popped out multiple times. He got taken down. He got TKO'd. There's an asterisk next to that one. Then he goes and fights Henry Cejudo, and he beats Cejudo via decision in a fight where Cejudo had been gone for about three years. He hadn't been in the octagon, and some people believe that Henry Cejudo did enough to win that fight via decision. They think that Aljamain, again, got a robbery style of victory to retain his championship. So there hasn't been a really dominant win for the champion in Aljamain Sterling, aside from that first round rear naked choke submission win over Corey Sandhagen back at UFC 250. When I look at this fight, I see the striking of O'Malley catching Aljamain Sterling before he's able to work those takedowns. I think he his striking defense when he closes the pocket is so bad that only somebody with a length and reach advantage and with a counter striking ability like a Sean O'Malley with the technical striking ability that he has can catch a guy like Aljamain Sterling. He can catch him up the center channel with knees off level changes, uppercuts off level changes, um, front kicks to the body, but it's going to be that one, two down the middle that I think Aljamain's going to have the biggest trouble with because yes, you can duck under the two of the opponents shoot in, get the takedown and work the wrestling from there. He can, he can time the two 
could go in with a level change and take him down. And I definitely think it's possible that Aljamain just takes him down, backpacks him, you know, wins a lot of the rounds or finishes him early. I definitely think that that's possible, but I just see a path where Sean O'Malley catches Aljamain Sterling on the chin with a knee or catches him with an uppercut, catches him with a one-two, drops him and gets him out of there. And I think it's a one-shot knockout. I don't even think it's a TKO. I think if, if and the, the smart thing for Sean O'Malley would be that if he does rock Aljamain and drop him, you have to let him back up. Even though Aljamain isn't the best off of his back, mainly he's good when he's on the opponent's back, when he's in top position, when he's in control, I still wouldn't even give him the chance to be able to work subs or sweeps off of his back or potentially work a single leg from the bottom to stand back up because you're going to be playing into the game of Aljamain Sterling. So I think even if he drops Aljamain, you let him up and you go right back to work and you step in, step out, time him on a level change, uppercut, fade back right hand. The six pullback two, I think is going to be the shot that knocks Aljamain Sterling out. He's going to time him stepping in with that one, two. He's going to rock him. Aljamain's going to come in on a takedown uppercut. He's going to stick, pull, uh, hit his head. His head's going to go up. He's going to pull back, land that right hand, and knock out Aljamain Sterling to become the new UFC bantamweight champion of the world. I'm going with and. New, the first ever Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series fighter to win a world title. And Sugar Sean O'Malley, the Sugar Show, becoming the new UFC bantamweight champion this Saturday at UFC 292 via second round knockout victory over Eljamain the Funkmaster Sterling. And some people might sit here and say that I dislike Eljamain because I've never picked him in any of the fights on the podcast. And listen... I don't love Aljamain Sterling, but I do respect him. But at the same time, his title run has been very questionable. But also, when you look at this fight, think about the intangibles, man. Aljamain just fought a UFC 288. That was four pay-per-views ago, so about four to five months ago. Going into that fight, he was injured. He had a neck injury. He was dealing with a lot of neck problems, back problems. Um, He was going to get the surgery to fix it. He wasn't able to do it, I don't think. And he's been dealing with some nagging injuries. He didn't want to take the fight. He wanted to take some time off. But the UFC didn't allow it. The UFC made him fight in Boston. Aljamain didn't want to take the fight. He, they forced him to take the fight against a very difficult style matchup on the feet, but a favorable matchup in terms of the grappling. I think there's a lot of red flags here. Aljamain keeps talking about moving up to 45, going up to featherweight. This will be his last fight in the division, whether he wins or he loses. He's coming off a lot of injuries, a lot of neck problems. He might have got the neck problems fixed, but I don't think he did. I think he was planning on doing that after the Cejudo fight. And um, you know what? No, he did get it fixed after the Jan fight. And then following that, he was still having some issues. It was either after the Jan or the Dillashaw fight, he got his neck fixed. And I guess he still had some lingering issues, some numbness in his arms and stuff like that due to the nerve damage. And he said that he wasn't ready to take the fight. He wanted to take some time off. He was very, you know, he was biting back a lot, not wanting to take this fight after just defeating Henry Cejudo. They forced him into this fight. Now he's defending the title. He's talking about moving up in weight, saying that even if he loses, this will be his last fight in the division. And he's going up to 45. Those are all red flags, which just make me more confident in Sean O'Malley to win this fight. So I'm going with it. I'm going with the big 2-1 to underdog over a 2-1 to underdog. And Sugar Sean O'Malley to improve to 17-1 and in his UFC career, or, or I'm sorry, in his MMA career, and become the new UFC bantamweight champion, defeating Aljamain Sterling via second round 
knockout victory. That's going to be it for my UFC 292 Sterling versus O'Malley preview predictions and breakdown. This podcast is available anywhere you get your audio podcast. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, and many, many more. This podcast will be edited and uploaded to my YouTube channel, which is the same name as the podcast at the Touch Em Up Podcast. Let's make some money this weekend for UFC 292 and enjoy the fights in the meantime. Let's go, baby.